Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. She became the first woman in the 84-year history of the Astronomy Society of the Pacific to receive the Catherine Wolfe Bruce Medal, one of the highest honors in astronomy. In 1985, President Reagan presented Burbage with the National Medal of Science, pointing to her work as proof that there are no limits to discovery and human progress when men and women are free to follow their dreams. In the late 1980s, she designed the faint object spectrograph, one of the most sophisticated devices installed on NASA's Hubble Space Telescope. She also served from 1990 to 1996 as co-investigator of the data emanating from the Hubble, which have provided additional clues into the nature of both black holes and quasars. Over the years and around the world, Burbage has sought to bring science to the common man. Since her first years as an astronomist, she has argued that science must impart the wonder of science to the public. She has remained faithful to this goal throughout her career, particularly in regards to underrepresented groups in the scientific community. Burbage has openly advocated for greater opportunities in science for women and minorities. As one who has experienced firsthand the challenges facing women in the sciences, Burbage has brought a fresh and diverse perspective to the study of astronomy and science in general. In her lecture today, entitled The Riddle of the Redshift, The Universe We Don't Understand, Professor Burbage will discuss the enigma of the redshift, the systematic increase in the wavelength of all light received from a celestial object, and reveal the intricate complexities surrounding one of the most mysterious phenomena in astronomical science today. Without further delay, I am pleased to present to you Professor E. Margaret Burbage. invited to give this talk, uh, The Riddle of the Redshifts, uh, 
of the universe we don't understand. Uh, there are two current models um, which uh, arouse quite a lot of controversy. Uh, this is the standard cosmology um, that first gets referred to in the literature as SC, standard cosmology, where there was a creation event and, uh, in other words, a hot big bang to the universe. And then the other model is uh, now called the quasi-steady state cosmology, QSSC. And if you want to read some details, pros and cons for both of these models. Yeah, we should have tried this first, I suppose. You don't want to hear? Sure. <laughs> Well, if you want to read about those two models, uh, the most recent issue of the, uh, the annual reviews of astronomy and astrophysics uh, has, a, has a very good article, a review, by two Indian astronomers. Um, the pros and cons of both those models are the Indian astronomers are Jayantnalikar, and, uh, and uh, uh, Padmanabhan, I always get stuck on his name. And uh, if you really want to go into the details of the pros and cons, um, uh, uh, that is a good, a good uh, place to look. I should also refer to a recent book by Fred Hoyle, about whom I was speaking yesterday, for those of you who, who, who heard me yesterday. Uh, Fred Hoyle, my husband, Jeffrey Burbage, and uh, Jan Nalika, those three authors, and it's called A Different Approach to a Cosmology, published by Cambridge University Press. And uh, as you can imagine, they are taking the opposite, different view from the, from the, uh, the standard model, the standard cosmology. Well, uh, if we're going to look at these two possibilities, what, um, what do, let's, let's ask first, what data do we have to work with? I spoke yesterday in, in the talk that I gave then about the uh, Fred Hoyle's work on the uh, creation of the elements in stars, all the chemical elements of which we uh, are made. And I mentioned that there were some problems with the lightest elements, deuterium or heavy hydrogen, uh, uh, helium and the very light elements lithium, beryllium and boron and the, I mentioned that there were some problems there we, we, uh, those of us who like the quasi steady state cosmology hope that, that those elements can be can, uh, uh, can have the same kind of an origin in stars in generations of stars the interiors of stars but the, uh, the standard cosmology uh, picture is that uh, these were actually created at the, at the origin of the universe. Um, in other words, created in the, in the uh, uh, hot big bang that I mentioned uh, uh, yesterday, where uh, uh, the three physicists, George Gamow, 
Edward Teller and Maria Gilbert Mayer uh, had predicted that all the elements composing our, our whole universe as we know it had been created out of neutrons at the origin of the universe. That was the, that was the 1946 view, and uh, the paper on the, on the the first really important paper on producing the elements in the interiors of stars through the nuclear reactions that create the energy for the stars, uh, that um, dates from the uh, 1946 work of Fred Hoyle. Well, um, what data do we have to work with in, 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 in looking at these two models for the cosmology of the universe? The observational data that we have are the, uh, the galaxies that are spread through the universe. We have uh, as many as we can measure, we have the redshifts of these. That is, we have the, the spectra and uh, the displacement of the lines from uh, a number of different elements towards the red end of the spectrum, which is interpreted as a, as a Doppler shift and tells us that the galaxies are moving apart. In other words, the universe is expanding, and this is, of course, the basis for, for uh, when you track that back in time. Uh, imagine what is expanding now was once, uh, um, just, just think of a, a time reversal. Uh, it would all have been concentrated in a very uh, small volume. Well, we have those, uh, those redshifts, uh, the measurement by uh, Edwin Hubble uh, and the, the realization from his work and subsequent work by a number of different people that, uh, that the, the uh, measured redshift, in other words, the velocity of recession is proportional to distance. So the further away a galaxy is from us, uh, the, the faster it's moving away from us. So, so we have that as, as number one um, uh, important piece of data. Uh, then, of course, theoretically, uh, we have Einstein's general theory of relativity, um, uh, the, the, the theory of gravitation, and this gives formulae for, for the expansion. And then the third thing that we have, we have the actual observation of the field of, of a field of radiation pervading the universe. And let me take, let me consider that first of all. Focusing, I suppose I'm better. Right. <laughs> Don't want to fall off the platform. Provided by low temperature microwave radiation. 
will first derive the temperature for this radiation. Is there a reason for the radiation having this temperature? And here's the modern value. Uh, just less than three degrees above uh, absolute zero, 2.73 degrees Kelvin. Well, uh, you'd, you'd like to answer the first question, uh, who discovered this radiation? But notice I haven't said the radiation throughout the universe. I've said the radiation in our Milky Way, our galaxy. And the answer here is not as you would think, uh, Penzias and Wilson, who got the Nobel Prize for detecting the radiation with their, uh, their uh, flight, nor uh, the COBE satellite, the cosmic um, background uh, uh, explorer satellite, but it was all the way back to 1941. Canadian astronomer Andrew McKellar Blotting out the view from, because I, I can uh, I can move over here. Oh, McKellar at the Dominion Astrophysical Observatory in Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, there's, there's the reference of his paper and uh, a couple more papers that are important in this respect. Uh, those. The work that was going on at, the, at that observatory was on the spectra of stars in our Milky Way. Our stars, and uh, what you see in the spectra of stars, besides what is coming from the star itself, uh, you see absorption lines produced by very diffuse cold gas that is pervading the um, Milky Way and other similar galaxies. And this, this diffuse gas produces uh, absorption lines which tell you what, uh, what, what the gas is made of and uh, other details about it, like its temperature. Well, um, uh, some, some of these uh, spectrum lines are due to cold diatomic molecules, just those very simple molecules, just carbon and hydrogen, and uh, uh, an excited state of that and carbon and nitrogen, just simple diatomic molecules that exist in this gas between, this cold gas between the stars. Well, McKellen, looking at the, uh, the cyanogen, uh, the CN, from a particular multiplet of this, of this uh, and, and making a lot of use of the, the work, particularly by Gerard Herzberg at, um, at the same institution who an expert on molecular spectroscopy, um, uh, identified some of these lines as coming from CN and uh, realized that these lines required that the gas had been raised from absolute zero, uh, raised up to uh, a low, uh, an upper level, but not a very high level. And uh, he worked out what temperature it would need to do that. And how, how, how to explain this was that the, our Milky Way galaxy must be pervaded by a radiation field, and he determined the temperature from, from his measurements of, 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 the, of the cyanogen. Got 2.3 degrees Kelvin. 
And uh, he set limits for the temperature um, due to his possible observational errors and so on. And uh, uh, 1.8 Kelvin to, to, to 3.4 Kelvin. So the temperature should should uh, lie in that um, in that uh, range. Well, this was a very important, but it as it turned out, a neglected uh, um, piece of work. Why was it neglected? Well, you can look at the date, 1941. We were in the, we were in the uh, World War Two. And there was something of a cessation in the transfer of scientific information and publications and so on. So that's part of the reason. But otherwise, it just just went into limbo. That um, uh, that measurement. Well. Um, Remembering that 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 uh, that uh, value that that, uh, uh, that Michaela found, um, what did Kobe find for the temperature? Kobe, the cosmic uh, uh, background explorer, 2.726 Kelvin. You see, very close to to, to Michaela's value. But why did it have that temperature? Well, there's no answer to that. And uh, before I get into that a little bit more, uh, let me just point out that um, there had been, in the work that I was talking about yesterday, for those people who were, were here yesterday, um, the, the, uh, there had been a prediction by George Gamow of those three people who had uh, postulated that all the elements were created at the, at the beginning of the universe. Um, he, he, he made two or three predictions, actually, but one of them was that there should be a temperature which might be detectable of, of about five degrees Kelvin. And that would be the temperature today due to the uh, relic radiation from the origin of the universe. Well, um, around this time, at least shortly after the end of, uh, of uh, World War II, uh, Fred Hoyle was doing his work that I, I told people about yesterday. And there were uh, three, three uh, um, astronomer, mathematician, physicists, Herman Bondi, Thomas Gold and Fred Hoyle, and they'd all been taken away from, from their... Uh, Bondi and Gold had been refugees from, from Nazi-occupied uh, 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 Europe, and uh, Fred Hoyle was from Cambridge, and they'd been taken to work on radar during, during, uh, uh, during the war. And they began to get interested, and they got onto it, right after uh, the end of the war, when they returned to their, to their research status, uh, interested in a, what they called a steady-state cosmology. That is that you didn't have a big bang, the, the universe had always existed, and the expansion was balanced by a continuous creation of matter. 
um, uh, throughout the universe. And they called this the steady state cosmology because the particles would be created to just balance the Hubble expansion. Well, uh, this requires some, some something to explain um, that abundance of helium we have, which was one of our problems from, from what I was telling you about yesterday. And uh, there was a suggestion that uh, the background radiation might have been produced by the conversion of hydrogen to helium in generations of, of stars. Uh, uh, and if this could be done efficiently enough, or if this had occurred efficiently enough, could this have explained all the helium that we had, that, that problem element? Well, let me go back to the, the question about the temperature of this radiation field. And I put up here um, a quotation from an article by one of the most uh, outspoken and um, serious supporters of the, the study, the, the Big Bang cosmology, the standard cosmology, and that is uh, Michael Turner, University of Chicago. And uh, uh, he had a paper on why is the temperature of the universe 2.726 degrees Kelvin. And uh, after the preamble, he says here, and I've underlined it, in the end, we have no firm explanation as to why the universe even has a temperature. That is, where the fiery radiation came from. According to the inflationary scenario, its existence traces to the decay of the false vacuum energy uh, at, the, at the origin of the universe. However, its explanation, like that of the expansion itself, may well involve physics yet to be understood, and never was a, was a truer statement made. Well, can you, uh, can you take up what Fred Boyle continued to, to work on and what, what uh, Jeffrey Burbage got interested in, can you, uh, can you take up the suggestion that, uh, that the helium was built uh, not at the origin of the universe, but like all the other elements in, in stars? Now, there's quite a lot of helium. Uh, by, by mass, the ratio of helium to hydrogen uh, measured in, in uh, uh, stars in, in nearby um, galaxies and is uh, it's always denoted by y and there ought to be an equal sign in there but it's 0.243 of the of the uh, of the uh, total um, uh, abundance of total abundance being one uh, you've got that fraction of, of, of the abundance is um, helium and the rest is mostly hydrogen. Well, if that were all produced by stars, um, you, if you take the summed mass density of galaxies throughout the universe, as uh, this figure here, 3 times 10 to the minus 31 grams per cubic centimeter, and I should point out that is a fairly well-established and accepted, well-accepted figure uh, for the mass density of galaxies throughout the universe. And if you take the known physical 
uh, energy yield that you get by converting hydrogen to helium, four hydrogens going to one helium, uh, you get per gram of matter, you get six by 10 to the 18 thirds. And that's a lot of energy. So what would the energy density be? Well, um, what it comes out to be then from, from that uh, is 4.5 times 10 to the minus 13 ergs per centimeter cubed. So is this, is this enough uh, uh, to, to have explained the helium in that way? Well, not, not, not quite, because the present day observed energy density of starlight in the galaxy, if you're suggesting that, that all the stars in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the galaxy, which is where you can really uh, measure the energy density of, of starlight, uh, what you get is 10 to the minus 14 ergs per centimeter cubed. And you see that's a bit, that's a, a low by this factor of about 50 over, over what you want, if you're going to make this explanation. Well, nevertheless, Hoyle, Jeffrey Burbage, and Jayant Nalikar uh, calculated the temperature uh, using this uh, thermalized energy density. And that was their, uh, uh, their uh, uh, argument. And. It, it's, they, they, they still like that argument, and I rather like that argument too. But, uh, but there, is, there is a discrepancy, and you've got to explain how that, that uh, general radiation coming out from hot stars, how it gets thermalized to the state where you see it in the microwave region. You see it comes out as, as ultraviolet and, and optical light, how does it get thermalized so that it, it uh, gives you a uh, 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 radiation field that is down, right down in the microwave region, uh, corresponding to that temperature of 2.7? Well, <clears throat> um, I think I had better uh, move on now and uh, 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 turn to other observational <coughs> information. Um, we've talked about the field of radiation pervading the universe. Uh, now uh, let's let's uh, let's look at the distribution of galaxies. There, um, there was a survey that went on for many years, carried out at the nearby Tahir Lick <coughs> Observatory, and it produced a map of, of the galaxies. This was carried out by Shane and Wurtenen, and uh, it's, uh, every point that you see on that map represents a galaxy. This was done with one of the not very large telescopes at Lick Observatory, and it was something that obviously, as you can see from the amount of data there, it went on for years. But what you can also see, I think, is that there's not a uniform distribution of galaxies. Now, of course, it had been known uh, ever since galaxies started to be studied that galaxies occur in clusters. In the, um, there's the Virgo cluster, the Coma cluster, and so on. 
And then, following from the work of uh, mainly of, of Gerard de Bocumer, uh, it was known that there were sepal clusters, that is, uh, aggregates of clusters forming even a, a larger uh, distribution. And you can see that this is very far from uniform. But that's, that's, that's a lot of data there. However, it's, it's a flat picture. You're not knowing anything about the, how far away from you any of those points of light on, the, on that diagram are. And here we get a, a very interesting and uh, important new type of observation, which was carried out by, by uh, uh, astronomers at Harvard University at the Center for Astrophysics, Margaret Geller and John Hukra. And from getting observations of the redshifts, in other words, the distances of uh, as many galaxies as possible, they produced a diagram which, uh, this is just their first strip, and it's, uh, this created quite a, a sensation. I have to explain to you what, how this, uh, this is arranged. Um, this pie diagram, if you like. Uh, we have one of the coordinates in the sky here, and the other range of coordinates, you've obviously got coordinates like latitude and longitude in the sky, and the other range is, is here. And galaxies that are measured here are all brighter than a certain magnitude, 15.5 magnitude. And every point here represents a measured galaxy uh, whose redshift has been measured. And the redshifts are plotted <coughs> along this side of the pi diagram. So, so uh, you, you have to think that this is a thin slice through the universe, uh, a, a slice that, that's only uh, as, as wide as from 26 degrees to 32 degrees. Uh, but it's a, it's a pi extending in the other coordinate over quite a range here. And people, when they first saw this, this, uh, this diagram here, this was called the, the little stick, stick shift, stick man, and it does look like a little uh, stick figure. But it's a very important observation because you see that there is very far from a uniform distribution here. There are groupings in this uh, uh, velocity and thus distance versus position in this, in this slice through the universe. Well, this, uh, this obviously needs to be followed up. You can ask yourself what happens in the southern hemisphere. Uh, and here's a similar picture for the, for the, uh, for the southern hemisphere. See, there's a big collection of galaxies here, and again, this is this is a, a pi diagram. Uh, the range, uh, the range of one coordinate is a bit larger. It's some 30 degrees here, uh, in and out of the, the plane of the of the screen, and uh, the other coordinate going around the sky is this. And here are all these points. Again, very very far from from uniform. And the last of these 
toy diagrams that I'll show you. Again, in the southern hemisphere. There was that, um, this is extending further. We're going out uh, to, to, to higher, to larger velocities, larger redshifts, therefore extending a little bit further out from our point of observation, which is here. And again, very far from uniform, and these structures, and these structures are like what you saw in the Shane and Workman picture. And they're structures that uh, indicate that you ought to look and see what in, in this, uh, any cosmology would have produced that kind of, uh, that kind of structure. Well, um, From the cosmic uh, background explorer, uh, the distribution of the little lumps of a little bit hotter and a little bit colder in that background radiation. If this was, if you're looking right back to near the origin of the universe, as in the standard cosmology, uh, then you'll be seeing early fluctuations that must have something to do with the creation process of the radiation. And uh, by, by mapping those, uh, those uh, fluctuations, you could hope to tie those to the structure that we now see in the, in the distribution of galaxies. Well, Kobe uh, did a wonderful job on this. And the next uh, instrument, Boomerang, a balloon, high altitude balloon born uh, instrument. And uh, I'm not showing you any of this, these uh, data because uh, because uh, well, there's time to talk about everything in this uh, in this uh, uh, lecture, but the boomerang data is even better than the Kobe data. And let's let's leave this now. All all that I've told you now about these uh, these observations are looking very good for the standard cosmology, not for the quasi steady state cosmology, but for the standard cosmology. So let me turn now to some difficulties that the standard cosmology has. Um, the first is a, an effect that was discovered some, uh, some years ago by William Tift at the University of Arizona. What uh, Tift did was he looked at uh, redshifts in the and measured for galaxies in one of the good, uh, supposed to be to be uh, uh, isotropic, um, not isotropic, but uh, but um, uh, well-formed cluster of galaxies in the constellation Coma, the Coma cluster galaxies, and he looked at the measures of redshifts of those galaxies. Now, of course, they don't all come out in the same redshift. Obviously, there's a, there's a scatter. Are there any patterns in the scatter? And uh, uh, William Tift, working with uh, his, his colleague, uh, Cocky, um, but the first work was done by, by Tift alone, found uh, an effect 
but he couldn't explain a, a, a kind of a periodicity in the redshifts of these galaxies in this one cluster. You can imagine that the, the cluster ought to have a, 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 a redshift, a, an average mean redshift uh, that represents its position in, in, uh, in the universe. And you'd get a scatter about this, but would there be any, any pattern to the scatter? Well, what Tiff found was a periodicity. He seemed to find a periodicity. And of course, it took him a long time to get his work published, and, and, and it's never been really accepted. But he found a periodicity that there were peaks in the, in the redshift distribution uh, at, at a value that he determined to be 72.5 kilometers per second. Well, the paper was published, but nobody paid any attention to it. It didn't fit with, with the standard uh, beliefs, and uh, so it was essentially ignored for, for a number of years. But fortunately, uh, a, a study was made uh, in 1996 by Guthrie and Napier. And let me, let me start to put up their data. What they did was they, they said we need to get better, better uh, uh, velocities. If we're going to look for a, a periodicity like this, we really have to be sure that we have velocities that have been very accurately measured. So they didn't go to uh, observations made with optical telescopes, but with the much more accurate uh, radio telescopes where you could use a radiation that is, is emitted by, by a, a cold neutral hydrogen at 21 centimeters. And the radio telescopes discovered this radiation and it's been an extremely useful astronomical tool. And uh, uh, the, this, this was the frequency uh, that uh, uh, Guthrie and Napier decided to, to use. Um, so using 21 centimeter data, well that's all very well, you may have very accurate data, but you're observing galaxies all over the sky, and you better know what, what systematic effects you have to take care of. And that means what motions have you yourself. If you're measuring these velocities and you want to look for an effect in them, you better get, make sure that they're, they're referred to as zero velocity. So what velocities do we have that, that have to be taken care of? Well, look at a telescope on the Earth. The first thing is the Earth is rotating, uh, and therefore there's a small effect due to the fact that you might be going away or coming around, uh, and that, that's a small velocity correction, and obviously very well known. Uh, the other, uh, the next uh, thing is, uh, the, the, the Earth is moving in its orbit around the Sun. Once again, the, the, the orbit is very well known, and therefore you know uh, a correction to apply for that velocity, which is, which is easily done. So you take care of those. But then we come to a more difficult one, and that is that the Sun and its neighborhood stars, the, our Milky Way is rotating, and therefore, uh, it's rotating about a central point in the galaxy. 
And while the radio astronomers can, can pretty well pinpoint where the, where the center of the galaxy is, uh, the, the, this rotation, this rotation is, uh, is, uh, uh, is something that you, you've got to take account of because it would introduce a spurious effect in, in any search for a sort of periodicity that uh, Guthrie and Napier were looking for. Uh, well, they did a, a, a really careful job, and as far as one can tell, it, uh, uh, it was, just, it was uh, people like myself, who, who are uh, not a radio astronomer, and, uh, uh, but, but looking at the work that they did, you, you have to think that they really did it carefully and uh, determined not only the, uh, the actual vector from, from the, the uh, solar system to the center of our galaxy, but the actual vo value of, the, of that component of velocity. And they uh, wrote a paper in which they went into detail as to how they did this. And I, I don't know if there are any uh, people in the audience who have <laughs> looked into their determination, but uh, for me it looked, uh, looked as though it was, it was, um, it was correct. So they, so they took out all these components of velocity and then they looked at what they had from, from a, a, a number of about a hundred spiral galaxies. Spiral galaxies they had to look at because these contain uh, neutral hydrogen where they could use 21 centimeter radiation to get these very accurate velocities. And they seemed to, to, to uh, get an effect. And when, when, you, when you're thinking of getting an effect, you better do a, a very careful statistical analysis. And they did this. They, they, uh, they determined, they, they plotted a power spectrum, which is shown here. And what you plotted here, uh, against a possible period, You've plotted a power spectrum of the of the uh, the strength of the signals that you're getting from from these. Uh, they had 97 spiral galaxies in this study, and they give the coordinates that they use for this solar vector. This this thing that's very important to take out uh, to determine well and take out uh, the velocity and uh, the the coordinates of the. These are the values that they had, 217 kilometers a second for the, for the sun's uh, solar system's rotation around our galaxy, and the coordinates are here. And this is the power spectrum, and uh, nobody was able to find any, any errors in that, uh, uh, that work, but, uh, but it gets pretty well ignored in the literature. But look at that spike. A power spectrum. If you've got an effect of any sort, you'll get a spike. In the, if you if you measure, uh, 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 get the power and plot plot this frequency diagram, and look at where it occurs uh, in the uh, in the velocity coordinate up here. It's occurring not at not at uh, uh, TIFFs 75 or 72 or 73 uh, value here, but at half that occurring here, about 37.5. Well, um, this, this is a, 
Nobody pays much attention to this work, and yet it's very carefully done work. And it's one of the things that I wish people would take into consideration when they're, when they're looking, when they're evaluating two models for, for, for the, the origin of the universe, or the non-origin of the universe, the quasi-steady state cosmology, which, which uh, uh, has the universe expanding now, but uh, uh, in a previous cycle, in the quasi-steady state cosmology, uh, the universe was contracting. And so we're in an expansion phase right now, but uh, it's a cyclic picture of the universe. And this is the picture that, uh, that Fred Hoyle, uh, Jan Nalika, and Jeff Burbage uh, um, work with. Well, I don't know how you explain that, that, uh, that spike there. It's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's really, to me, very striking. And I would like to close with just one more effect which bears on work that I do on quasars. I've been working on the spectroscopy of quasars for many years, but uh, and I found some interesting effects in which certain quasars, which are supposed to be randomly distributed over the sky, and quasars are supposed to be the very bright nuclei uh, of um, galaxies going through a certain phase in their evolution, and there are, uh, of course, they're, they're far fewer uh, uh, than, um, than the galaxies. But if you, if you look at quasars and their distribution in the sky, you find some strange effects. And here again is an ignored paper by uh, uh, Jeff Burbage, uh, two Chinese astronomers, and uh, another colleague in which they've looked at the distribution in the, in, in the, around certain galaxies of, of quasars. And here is the uh, separation from, if we've got a galaxy at a position denoted by zero here, uh, uh, quasars, uh, you might find quasars 25 minutes of arc away in the sky, 50 or 75 and so on. And uh, if you map out these quasars from whatever catalogs there are and look at what you find, you find that there seem to be more close to the galaxy, more quasars close to the galaxy. So you ask yourself, is this, a, is this something introduced by the observations? Is this a random effect? Well, you can make a couple of checks you can say, let's look at a, a position three degrees away from the galaxy. Three degrees one side, three degrees the other side. And they did this, and they get a zero, a null effect in both those. Well, this is not a paper that people look at much, and uh, I don't know if they look at it any now, but, uh, but to me it's a very important result, and it bears on my own research work, which I'm not talking about here, which is which is on quasars near galaxies. But you see, it looks like a, uh, it looks like a straightforward effect uh, without an, an explanation, except that uh, the quasars must represent something other than just the nuclei of galaxies. <clears throat> well, to sum up, uh, and I can't really sum up, uh, in, a, in a summing up, I can't really be fair to the quasi 
steady state cosmology because there are many things that we don't know about, about um, um, that should be put into a proper theory of uh, how an expansion is succeeded by a compression, uh, an oscillating universe, if you like. In fact, uh, an oscillating universe, in fact. Um, you ought to be able to uh, develop the theory. But there are things in, this, in the standard cosmology which we haven't got an explanation for. Uh, one of them is what is the existence of the kind of, of matter that, that we have to postulate uh, its existence that has to explain m many properties of, of the universe, the so-called dark matter. It has to explain the, the distribution of mass in, the, in the, the outer parts of galaxies and just some unseen mass in, in um, uh, uh, clusters of galaxies and uh, we've no idea what kind of um, particles are producing this mass. It's just called dark matter. And there's a search for what kind of physical particles might be producing this mass, but it's, it's, it's an unknown at the moment. So, um, so there we are. Uh, I, it's, it's difficult to sum this up because it's still in such a state of flux. <coughs> there are coming some more observations of the, to measure the, in greater detail, the uh, cosmic background radiation. And there's a large amount of computer work going on, taking those fluctuations that have already been seen in that uh, in that distribution, and uh, seeing such how such fluctuations could evolve in time uh, in an expanding universe. So there's, there's a lot of work that keeps the people at supercomputers busy, and we have one such. Um, group carrying on that kind of work at, at University of California, San Diego, and uh, there are, of course, other groups doing this. And then there are further experiments being built to measure with even greater accuracy this background radiation, uh, something uh, that would be an advance on both COVID and uh, the boomerang. And those are, are in the works of, of, of construction. Well, as I say, I can't really sum up. Sum up. Uh, I have a I have a preference myself, uh, mainly because of the work I do on quasars and that, that last diagram that I showed you. I have a preference for the quasi-steady state cosmology, but it's really only a philosophical preference. And uh, I. I uh, as an experimental, observational person, I stand, I stand ready to be corrected, to be shown that there are conclusive proofs that the standard cosmology is correct, but I'm, I'm still waiting for that. Thank you. Yes. 
because of Trump administration. I'd like to add a couple more points if I may today. You had mentioned that Geller and Huffra work is supportive of the Big Bang. At the same time, it also raises problems because in these, what they imagine with redshifts, there are structures that go off the map a billion and a half light years in dimension that there wouldn't be sufficient time in the Big Bang model to assemble such yes. a gigantic array of structures. If they're, if they're indeed are true, true structures. Yes. And, and also, I think you mentioned this diagram on the quasars uh, in the vicinity, uh, applying the vicinity of certain galaxies of disparate redshift of the market, and also that there seems to be in some of the drawings uh, tidal interactions between these quasars spacing plus or minus certain number of arcs from the galaxies, which is totally uh, against the, the modern view of the quasars. Yes. But in, in that, how, in, let's say you have what appears to be a tightly interacting quasar of an enormous redshift, let's say four, with a, with a galaxy 1.5 redshift. How, but the galaxy doesn't have the line and alpha forest columns that the quasar does, which would again make it seem like the equations are far away. How do you reconcile? You, you hit right on the difficult. What I see as the main difficulty of this idea with the, with the quasars, and uh, um, uh, yes, what we the, some of the fairly low redshift quasars that um, that are found around uh, galaxies with active nuclei. Uh, uh, some of those ought to be really examined for 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 the for the Lyman Alpha Forest. That the, the Lyman Alpha Forest is is a whole mass of, of uh, lines of, of neutral hydrogen appearing in uh, uh, in ultraviolet uh, spectra of uh, of um, of uh, quasars. And to my mind, that is the, the the strongest argument for the standard cosmology. And I uh, didn't have time to get into details of that, but I, I think you've hit on the one point there. Needs needs more work, really. Needs more work. I have several questions. First one, <coughs> not yesterday, but today, you didn't mention the gravitational energy, which is governing energy, organized energy, how is it possible to split without some events when one thing back this fair story? And then, and moreover, to believe that it was a big bang, big bang is that if our universe is expanding, in what certainty is it expanding? It's, 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 it's just expanding. In what certainty? It's something beyond. Well, I I can't get into the details of the standard cosmology. I know, I know, I have to to wait. But I, I do have to say that this is... you down, you down in this... That review article that I mentioned by those two uh, Indian... Uh, astrophysicists, Nalikar and, and Padmanaban, they, uh, that's a very good review article that does give all the pros and cons. 
it doesn't get into certain things uh, like, like this this um, lemon alpha forest. I think that is yeah, one of the uh, one good. of the. Well, yes. I'd like to ask uh, two ideas in relation to this uh, correlation with galaxies and quasars. One of them is: is it possible that uh, in thinking of the galaxy as a, as a magnifying lens, that it's just simply making it possible for us to... Yes, this is a very interesting uh, point. Um, uh, if you see, if you see, if you have a galaxy and there are some background quasars, uh, can the galaxy be uh, acting as a gravitational lens and magnify the number of quasars that you see around? And that's a very important point. And uh, the arguments that have been made against that, not by me or by Jeffrey Burbage, but the arguments have been that there aren't enough background from what we've found so far. It needs more work, though. It, 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 it ought to be very seriously looked at because, uh, because um, uh, it, it, it's a point that, that, um, that might destroy this, this argument of quasars as being associated with galaxies. So to speak. Right. But th I think that's been fairly well ruled out. 
the Tower of Light ideas. Why, 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 why do you feel that? Well, you would get, to, if, if the, you had some effect that was acting upon uh, light coming from a distant object, uh, it, it ought to scatter that light as well. Okay, so I've you, heard, you get I've a. Heard that. Yeah, yeah. I am not sure that. That's all right. Thanks. In the back. Uh, yes, I'd like to uh, mention two more or less local phenomena. The one you mentioned is the periodicity of redshift from the local supercluster. And the need for dark matter uh, with the concentration of local effects like the black rotation curves and that sort of thing. Uh, with respect to those two phenomena, the quasi-state uh, state cosmology offer explanations that the standard cosmological model does not? Uh, no, it doesn't. No, no. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there are not enough people that are interested enough or. or uh, or feel that they could get support enough to work on the on the uh, quasi-steady state cosmology. This is a point that's made in that review article. That, uh, that, uh, it's, uh, Another in the back. Yes, Listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.